Well, stand with me as we rise this morning and read a portion of our sermon text. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We will go all the way through verse 44 of chapter 11 this morning, but to get us going, I just want to read through verse 27, which gives us the essential gospel sense of what is before us today, and then I'll pray for a time and and we'll begin together. Uh, So do listen once again as as the Lord is speaking to you now through his perfect word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness it does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, for they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do bow before you this morning, eager to meditate upon your truth and fix our eyes upon your ways. Lead us, we pray, in the path of righteousness. Make your face to shine upon your servants, that our souls may live and praise you through Jesus Christ, he who is our resurrection and life, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever read The Wise Teacher, 
in the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that he says there is a particular place you can go to grow in godliness. It's a place that might surprise you when you hear his counsel. Because twice in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, he says, you want to grow in faithfulness? Go to a funeral. If you want to grow in spirituality and piety, go to a cemetery. Because he says, to go to the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. And just a few phrases later, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And as a pastor, I have done more funeral services than I wish I had. Uh, Funerals for men and women that have died of cancer ravaging their body. Others that have just died of old age. Some funerals done in the wake of suicide. Others when the tiniest of hearts were taken away all too soon. Uh, but, But as a pastor, I know, and I trust even you might understand the wisdom of the wise teacher, that a house of mourning, a funeral, a cemetery, is a place that is unusually powerful in ministering the truth of Christ's gospel because it's, of course, in a house of mourning that the final things meet you. It's in a cemetery that the eternal realities confront you. It's there in a house of mourning that death is real, something from which our culture so desperately wants to run away from and not even know much about. And I tell you that because we come in John chapter 11 to what might be the most famous house of mourning in the life and ministry of Jesus. That's a house of mourning of three people that Jesus loves. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And it's here in this house of mourning that we get one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever performed. Even one old preacher said of this passage, For grandeur and simplicity, for pathos and solemnity, Nothing like it was ever written. And if you were with us last week, we left off at the end of chapter 10 with Jesus uttering for the last time an invitation to these Jewish religious leaders that were so eager to kill him, that were so often rejecting him. If you glance back to chapter 10, verse 38, you see the invitation when he simply says, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me And I am in the Father. What we've seen all throughout John's gospel is Jesus keeps doing these works. And they're they're done so that people would believe in him. That he is the Son of God. That by believing in him, they might have life in his name. And what we come to in this miracle before us today is, is the capstone to what we might call the book of signs in John's gospel. Because what's been happening from chapter 2 through chapter 12 is John has structured his narrative around primarily these seven signs. And the last sign is the one that comes in our passage today with the raising of Lazarus. And what we've seen over and over in our previous studies is that these signs are just messianic miracles. Uh, They're meant to display who uh, Jesus is. But they're also meant to do something else. Not just display who Jesus is and his identity as God's true beloved son, but also unfold the glory that belongs to Jesus, who is God's son. 
Because you might think all the way back to John chapter 1 in this majestic prologue near the end, uh, John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when the book of signs opened with the miracle at the wedding in Cana, water turned into wine, that scene ended by John telling us it was there for the first time that Jesus manifested his glory. And the appropriate bookend to the book of signs glanced down to chapter 11, verse 4, before us today, where Jesus says, what is happening with Lazarus is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So that's simply what we want to see today. The glory of Jesus in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And kids, of course, I want you to be interested in this. Because you do live in a culture that increasingly wants to hide you away from the reality of death. Uh, But children, students, I trust you know, if Jesus tarries, you will die. Death is life's great inescapable reality this side of the new heavens and the new earth. And we're meant to see something about the glory of Christ and him giving life to Lazarus this morning. And we want to see yet again what we've seen so often in John's gospel, how a sight of Christ's glory, it does change everything. Uh, We've seen by this point how a sight of, of Christ's glory, it can give comfort to the grieving. A sight of Christ's glory, it can soften the hard hearted. It's a sight of Christ's glory that can humble the proud. And today it's a sight of Christ's glory that gives life to the dead. So that's simply the idea that we have today is the glory of Christ and giving life to Lazarus. And there's a number of things I want to point out related to this glory of our Savior. But the first is this. The glory in his waiting. Because look again what we're told in verse 3. We have a situation with these siblings. And the sisters send to Jesus, Lord, he, that being their brother Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. Surely by this point, Mary and Martha, they know at least, if not have observed, Jesus' power over sickness. That disease is something he can decree over. Or decree into a person's life. So surely as sickness has placed Lazarus on a deathbed, he can come and do something about it. Jesus, come and help, is what they say. And you'll see in verse 5 and 6, Jesus delays and he tells us why in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death, it's for God's glory. So that I might be glorified in it. What he's saying is, Lazarus is of course going to die, but, but death is not going to have the final say in this scenario and, and situation. It's something that reminds me of this old poem by a poet named John Donne where he said, Death be not proud, though the whole world fear you, mighty and strong though you may be. Death be not proud, your pride has failed you, you will not kill me. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to come, Mary and Martha. Lazarus is going to die. Because he needs to die so that you see something of my glory. And then you'll notice as the text continues, once Lazarus is dead, Jesus says, well, now it's time to go. And the disciples say, wait, Lazarus is dead. And if we go back, you're going to be dead too. Look at verse 8. 
They said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? You might remember the scene from last week at the end of chapter 10. Jesus has just uttered there in this cold, wintry breeze in Solomon's colonnade on the east side of the temple. He's said that he is God. He is equal with the Father. And the Jews, of course, race to the rocks to pick up these stones with which they're going to kill Jesus. And then he departed out because it wasn't his hour to be arrested and certainly not killed. And now he's planning to go right back into the lion's den. And understandably, his disciples are saying, well, we just left there where they were going to kill you and you want to go right back to where they're going to want to kill you again. And if you just glance through what he says in verse 9 and 10, he gives this enigmatic statement about working when it's light and living in the light and darkness is coming. If you attach that to something he's soon going to say in the upper room discourse, all he's saying is, the hour of my death has not yet come. That's that hour of darkness that's going to fall upon the earth. And I need to work. These messianic miracles must happen while it's still light. So, brothers, we we need to go to where Lazarus is. Notice verse 16. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So you see something even early on of this man that would, by the end of this gospel, become popularly known as Doubting Thomas. Because there's some courage in Thomas there, isn't it? Let's go. But he thinks Jesus is wrong, or at least he misunderstands what Jesus just said about light and darkness, because he says, well, they're going to kill him. But let, let's die with him. And so they're on their way back to Lazarus' house, and Martha greets him. Martha, if you know Luke 10, seems to have this kind of active, energetic nature. She walks the two miles away from her house to meet Jesus. Look at verse 21. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's true, isn't it, that in our own life, in following Jesus, that we can fall prey to and even succumb to that temptation to live a spiritual life that's, if only you had listened, things would be different. If, If only you had answered, he would still be here, she would still be here. If only you had delivered, things would be better. But as one wise old commentator said of this very verse, we are apt in such cases to add to our own trouble by fancying what might have been. Lord, if only you had been here, it would have gotten better. And of course, that's true. But Jesus knew he couldn't be there because Lazarus needed to die. And you'll see what she says in verse 22. There's this seed of faith, no doubt, even present reality of trust in Martha's heart. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. To which Jesus responds, Lazarus is going to rise again. But it's not news that immediately comforts Martha, is it? Because you see what she responds with in verse 24. I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I'm a good conservative Jew, is what Martha is saying. Resurrection from the dead, we know that's coming at the end of time. 
Maybe you know there was this great theological rivalry in this time in Jesus' day between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, and principally, it was a rivalry over whether or not there was such a thing as resurrection from the dead. And Martha here aligns herself with the conservative Jewish party that says, at the end of all time, there's going to be resurrection from the dead. But, but Jesus is not speaking about future resurrection. You'll notice what he's speaking about isn't merely present resurrection, but personal resurrection. If we look again, verse 25, 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's the fifth of Jesus' seven I am statements. And it's significant the way in which he phrases this to Martha, and of course to us today. He's not preaching a gospel, he's not sharing good news that simply is full of information and facts about his power and his strength and his might over death, because he could talk about that. It would be true. But what does he simply say? I am resurrection. I am life. It's a present personal reality. That's why when we think about sharing the gospel and speaking about the gospel, there's a, a great difference, isn't there, to speaking about the gospel and speaking the gospel. Here is Jesus saying, I am the gospel of resurrection. I am the gospel of life. I'm not just telling you facts and information about resurrection life. It's all found in me. And you see how he concludes this conversation with Martha with a question in verse 26. Do you believe this? And it has to be the, the greatest question, isn't it, that, that confronts you today. Nothing more simple, more significant than this. Do you believe? Do you believe? He is resurrection. He is life. And Martha says, yes, I do. You see verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. So in many ways... Jesus has ministered to Martha, but he loves this household, this house of mourning. And there's another sibling that hasn't yet come to the forefront in the passage, and that's the other sister, Mary. And you'll see as the text continues, verse 28 through 30, that Jesus calls for Mary. She comes the two miles out to where Jesus is, along with these Jews that had been in her house, consoling her, perhaps even these professional mourners that so often belonged to Jewish culture at the time. But at the end of verse 31, you see, she rises quickly to go out. They followed her, that being Mary, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32, she comes to Jesus. She falls at his feet, weeping and wailing, saying the same thing her sister did. Lord, if you had only been here. And you have to understand how that must have sounded like if you were with that Jewish party walking along with Mary to where Jesus was. Here is a sister in the absolute agony of grief over losing a brother. Tears, no doubt, staining her face, flooding her eyes. The language here is this intense emotional outburst. Lord, if you had only been here. And it's her wailing that leads to one of the more stunning texts in all of John's gospel. 
Jesus weeps. You know, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, those decades and century past is a time where a lot of people would consider a man named Benjamin Warfield as the greatest English-speaking theologian of the age. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary. You know, often in his writings, there was this decisive and incisive way that he would uh, fight for the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. It was even said by a colleague that his preaching was incredible. Uh, Quote, this colleague said, his words fall like velvet from his lips. And it was in 1912 that B.B. Warfield wrote a paper at the time that went uh, relatively unheralded, but since his death, scholars have referred to as the hidden gem in all of his writings. It's, it's a paper simply titled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And part of the reason it is this treasure trove of gospel truth is it, it helps us understand a genuine part of the gospel story that goes so often underemphasized or maybe even forgotten, which is Jesus was truly human. And as the true human, he had a perfection in his emotions. And so what he does is he ransacks the Gospels, Warfield does, to help us understand what perfect emotions look like. And of course, he inevitably comes to John chapter 11. And he says of verse 33 through 34, what John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation So what's that heart of Jesus? This perfect emotion John uncovers for us. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There's glory in his weeping, just as there's glory in his waiting. Uh, The language here at the end of verse 33, it's, Somewhat famously in New Testament circles, often poorly translated into English. That final phrase, deeply troubled, is actually used previously in John's gospel to speak of these waters being stirred up. So kids, you can think about an ocean that's like stirred up with great violence and intensity due to hurricane-like winds. But even that phrase that precedes it, that he was deeply moved A better translation would be, he was irate. It's speaking about perfect, righteous anger in Jesus at that moment as Mary weeps before him. So students, when you think about perfect, righteous anger, you should ask the question of why is Jesus exhibiting perfect, righteous anger? I think there are many reasons, as often the answers to such questions go. He is certainly angry at death. It's a natural intrusion into God's created order. I do also think he's angry at the unbelief before him. These are people that had heard about, many of whom had surely seen six previous messianic miracles that declared who he was. And here they are falling apart in unbelief. There even is, if you read this passage with this idea in your mind, there's a not-so-subtle questioning of his love for Martha 
Mary, and Lazarus. All of which I think he's righteously angry towards. But that that anger comes with grief. For in that short verse, verse 35, in which an entire Christology you could preach is found, Jesus wept. I hope you know what it means to have a Savior who, who weeps over his sheep. That, that weeps over death. That knows perfect compassion. So when later on the Bible will say, weep with those who weeping. We know that we have a Savior who wept with those who wept. He knows what it means to grieve with those who are grieving. More on that in just a minute. The Jews say, verse 36, notice, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could he not, he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? What little did they know of what he was getting ready to do? There's glory in his waiting. Uh, You see the glory in his weeping. And here, there's also glory in his word. It says, look again, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved, Jesus, irate again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. So kids, you can picture the scene. In in our context, an area of the world today, uh, people, when they are are buried, are placed underground, usually. Back in Jesus' day, you weren't buried underground. You were normally entombed. You were slid into a cave. And a stone would be rolled in front of that cave so certain things didn't get in. Certain things didn't get out. And it seems as though Martha is worried about what might get out. Notice verse 39. Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he's been dead for four days. The King James, you might know, famously says, Lord, he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. Now, that four-day period of time is important because if you glance back to verse 17, it's already been used in the passage already. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been already dead in the tomb for four days. What's important about four days? Jewish culture of the time, the rabbis, the religious leaders of the time said that a person's spirit hovered over their body for three days. So if a person was resuscitated within that three-day time period, it was no miraculous reality. It was simply that the Spirit had re-entered. But after three days, that it was a clear miracle if a person was raised again from the dead. So no doubt, part of Jesus' sovereign reason for waiting is that the Jews, and this funny view that they had, would know that Lazarus, he's really dead. Kids, he's dead, dead is what they would understand. Martha knows that. Jesus, he's going to smell if you open up that stone. Didn't I tell you, notice verse 40, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. There's good meditation even in that verse for how the economy of grace works in the gospel. So much of our world is one of seeing is believing. But in the life of Christ, it's believing is seeing. You must believe in order to see. And then he begins to pray. Notice verse 41 and 42. Father, I thank you 
that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said these things, what must it have been to hear him pray and then to cry out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. There's glory in him giving life to Lazarus. There's glory in his waiting for Lazarus to die so the miracle could take place. There's glory in his weeping with his beloved sheep who lost a beloved brother. There's glory in this word, Lazarus, come out. You know, there are times where you, you as a preacher get to preach on texts a second time or a third time. Sometimes you're the kind of preacher that preaches on it the 15th time. And you hope you do better when you get a chance to preach on it again. I first preached on this passage almost 10 years ago on Easter Sunday. Our church at the time that I was pastoring, we were going through a completely different series in the morning. And I had planned for many months to on Easter Sunday that year, go to John 11 and use it for Resurrection Sunday because it's a thoroughly appropriate passage and text, isn't it? But even with all that planning, the Lord had appointed something altogether unexpected in our church's life because it was only 48 hours before Easter Sunday hit that one of the most beloved men in our congregation was suddenly and quite tragically taken. He died just... 48 some odd hours before Easter Sunday hit. And so I remember coming that Easter Sunday and, and preaching from John chapter 11 and looking where he normally sit, because as so many of you often know, you tend to sit in the same place. So I know who I'm going to see when I look in various parts of the room. And he would have been right there on a normal Sunday. But I remember it was an empty seat right there and when I came to the end of this sermon on John 11, I got rather tearful in that moment, and a church member came up to me after the service, uh, no doubt well-meaning, but somewhat misguided, patting me on the shoulder, saying, you know, when you get older, death doesn't affect you as much. And I thought almost immediately and gratefully the Lord kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I hope that's not true. We have a Savior who weeps. Over death. It is never ordinary that people die. It is never something that's emotionally empty that people die. That there's, there's glory to be found when you meditate on a Savior who empties graves. It's not scary to talk about death. Because there's a time coming when, just like Lazarus experienced, graves are going to give up their tenants. When Jesus says, wake up. And so what I want to do at the very end here is help you see two more parts of Christ's glory in this passage. I've saved them to the end because I think they're the most glorious elements. The first of which is his glorious care. You have to go back to the beginning of the passage to see that. Look at verse 5 and 6. In particular, Jesus hears the news. Lazarus is sick. Jesus is going to die if you don't show up. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister 
and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, better translation of that word, so, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He loved Lazarus, therefore he let Lazarus die. He loved Mary and Martha, therefore he let unimaginable grief and suffering come into their life. Do you know that sometimes the Lord's lack of action is nothing more than his love for his sheep? That he can so delight in his people that he actually delays in answering requests? Because to answer that immediate request would mean he, he doesn't do far more imaginable, great and good realities flooding into our life. That he's able to do incomprehensibly more than we can ask for or think according to the power at work within us. But here is a Savior who loves his people enough to know that sometimes they have to go through the sadness. Sometimes they have to go through the suffering. Sometimes they have to go through the grief in order that they might see he is the glorious, beloved Son of God. There's glory in the way he cares for his hurting people. Maybe you're sitting here today thinking, he doesn't care for me. There is no lack of action. I'm sorry, there is no action. There's nothing more than lack of action in my life. Nothing more than delays from heaven. Every single place I turn, he's not doing anything for me. Just think and consider today that it might be precisely because he loves you. That it seems as though heaven is silent. Because something greater than you can imagine is about ready to arrive. Something greater than those people could imagine is what came, of course, at the end of our passage. Because it's already told us, the chapter has, that they think Jesus is just there to weep alongside Mary. And so the, the stone is rolled away and they're not expecting to hear, Lazarus, come out! There's a glorious care of Christ in the passage. There's a glorious command of Christ. In the passage, that's the second and final thing to note here at the end. Lazarus, come out. Maybe you've heard that old quip that he had to identify who was to come out. Because if he said, come out, everybody would have. (laughs) But this is on the heels, isn't it, of a chapter that said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep by name. I call them out. (laughs) Lazarus, come forth. Isn't that what happens in conversion? Jordan, come out. Lucy, come out. John, come out. But the command isn't the last one he gives. Look at the last one he gives in the passage. Verse 44, Lazarus comes out. He's bound with linen strips, face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You must understand the spiritual reality that confronts every single person who has ever lived. Thus, it confronts all of you in the room today. Being born into sin means you're born into the rags of unbelief. The chains of iniquity, transgression, and sin bind you. You are dead in trespasses and sins. Completely incapable of doing anything to wake up. But the glory of Jesus Christ is he commands dead people to wake up. Soon he himself is going to what? 
rise from the grave. He's only a few months away from doing that. And now through the preaching of the gospel, what he does every single Sunday, and churches throughout the world like this one, do you know what he's doing? He's calling his sheep by name. Come out. Let me take off those rags. Put on my garments of righteousness. Let me remove those chains that you might belong to me. You who are dead, I am resurrection. I am life. So the question is simply what he asked Martha. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we have been blinded to the glory that's found in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you rose him from the grave, that his vindication there in his resurrection means justification is offered to us, new life found in his name. Let us know that life this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.